Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. And this week, I'm pleased to welcome back a return guest, which who is John Zena, who is the director of the Memphis and Shelby County Division of Planning and Development. So welcome back, John. Thank you for having me back. So you were, what did we talk about when you were on before? I think Last we talked about it. Up, we talked an, about an update on Memphis 3.0 comprehensive plan. Right. We had just done our first annual amendment to the Memphis 3.0 comprehensive plan. So we were looking back on the first year and talking about um, some of the changes that we, we made in that first update. Okay. So the reason I asked you to come on today is that your office has proposed a pretty significant change in the way in, in the zoning for a number of locations around the city. And I was trying to, I think I emailed you before this. I was trying to think of a way to talk about this without using the word zoning. And of course that's just totally not possible. Um, but because what you're proposing is, um, you know, comprehensive rezoning of commercial properties at a number of places around the city. And in my mind, I like to think about them as sort of, of course, I think the, this is great. I think it's got a huge potential to improve, you know, neighborhood character and neighborhood quality. And that's kind of how I think about it. And I want to talk about it really in terms of strengthening neighborhood centers. I know we're going to, we're going to veer into the jargon. I mean, talk about you know, I do like to get in the weeds sometimes on this show, and I think we're going to get in the weeds today. I do have my jargon bell at the ready in case I need to ring it. Hopefully I won't. So, a, a, you know, a, a f- big framework of the Memphis 3.0 comprehensive plan is this idea of neighborhood anchors. So can we just can, before we talk about the what you're proposing, what your office is proposing, let's sort of remind everybody what that is and what's the anchor strategy and then um, potentially how some of these anchors were selected in, in, in the different planning districts around the city. Sure. Um, well, just to remind everybody, Memphis 3.0 is our city's comprehensive plan. It's the first comprehensive plan that uh, Memphis has done in 40 years, and it's intended to guide, uh, the comprehensive plan is intended to guide uh, future growth, uh, but also the decisions that uh, the city is making to uh, either regulate growth in uh, a particular way to achieve the type of uh, development that's desired in communities across the city, or to invest in uh, neighborhoods to help to stimulate uh, new types of growth. So um, we recognized when we prepared the comprehensive plan that we were uh, working in a city that was largely developed, that had largely built out, and not only uh, had largely built out, but had built out largely. <laughs> uh, at 340 square miles, which, uh, you know, compared to other cities in the U.S., that is very large geographically. I think you could fit, you know, five or six Washington D.C.s inside Memphis uh, when we're talking purely in land area. Of course, Washington D.C.'s population is about the same as Memphis's, so that just kind of gives you a sense of uh, the difference in scale between uh, our city uh, and theirs. Um, and so when we're talking about that pattern of low density, the question becomes, um, if we're not anticipating a lot of, uh, of new population growth over time, um, then we have to be a little bit more sort of selective about 
how we're recommending uh, uh, that growth and, and ultimately recommending where the city and uh, hopefully uh, private sector is uh, focusing their attention in communities throughout the city. So that's where the anchor concept comes in, that, that there are uh, within our core city and within our neighborhoods, there are centers throughout our city that first need to be the anchors of new activity, new growth, that uh, with their success can have a ripple effect into the surrounding neighborhoods and create positive impact to the surrounding neighborhoods. So that's, that's the anchor concept, where it came from and why we think it's so important to the future of the plan. And so, so you know, in a given district, you know, there's going to be limited resources from all sources to invest. So instead of spreading the proverbial peanut butter, it makes sense to work with the community to select the places where it makes the most sense to invest and um, and then hopefully as you said that'll have a ripple effect throughout the throughout the neighborhood absolutely and 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 you know in addition to the tools of of regulation and investment you know what we're also trying to leverage here is is the tool of time that um, you know we start with in the short term, the focus on the anchors, and then in the medium and longer term, we're able to do more along the corridor. We're able to do more within the neighborhood itself. Um, and and by we, uh, you know, I don't just mean city government. Uh, you know, I also mean the uh, investment that comes from private sector partners, whether they be our nonprofit partners or whether they be, uh, you know, private sector for uh, for profit developers, but also just property owners uh, investing in their properties, bringing their properties up, um, you know, because there is positive momentum that has started at that anchor. So I guess in, in some, in the more urban neighborhoods, um, some of these anchors seem a little bit intuitive. And for example, in North Memphis, um, Hollywood and Chelsea. I'm just using that as an example. That's actually, I think, one of your, yes. one of the locations. But that's, I mean, when you think about North Memphis, there's some anchors. That's logically an anchor. Used to be a commercial hub, still has a lot of opportunity, convenient transportation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's not necessarily true in every neighborhood. What was the, um, you know, I did attend, you know, number of meetings, but remind us, like, what's the process of picking some of these anchors in a place like Frazier? Is it a little more aspirational? You know, the residents of Frazier saying, you know, if we, this makes sense, this might not look like an anchor, but but this makes sense as a place for us to, to target investment because we think it'll benefit a larger area. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Emily. Um, there, there were a lot of places, especially within the older core of the city, that it was more intuitive. And Chelsea and Hollywood is a great example of that, uh, where you've got a lot of neighborhood center building stock that's all, you know, that's still uh, strong uh, at that location. And like you said, there's good transportation access. There's easy opportunity to improve transportation access. Um, it's got a lot of elements that uh, make for a walkable community. Uh, but in some of our um, uh, some of the areas like Fraser that have been developed in later years um, and maybe in a more suburban pattern, it can be more difficult to find that logical anchor point. So the process that we went through in preparing the comprehensive plan was um, in each of our planning districts, Fraser being one of them, First, working with the community to identify the assets uh, of each area of the district. That, and that was really step one, identifying assets that could be built, built from, in a, potentially it might be aspirational, potentially it might be uh, a little bit more logical once you, you get on the ground and, and see you know, what those assets are and how they uh, either contribute to the community or they uh, act as a magnet for uh, for people coming to that location. Um, 
assets could be anything from, you know, commercial properties like we'll uh, mainly talk about today. It also could include, you know, a, uh, a community church that has a lot of draw from around the neighborhood, not just on Sundays, but maybe throughout the week uh, based on their services. Uh, you know, it could be, um, you know, a dense cluster of housing that uh, has as, uh, you know, positive um is a positive force uh, for the neighborhood. So going through that process, working with community residents and identifying those assets and then sort of visualizing those on the ground and thinking about, um, you know, how they could change both big and small uh, really helped us to solidify the selection of anchors within communities throughout the city uh, and, and help us to ultimately use the anchors as a basis to shape our future land use map uh, that's in the comprehensive plan. And it's that the future land use map that is, is really the, um, the element of the plan that's most useful for us and most important for us when we start thinking about zoning changes. Um, and, and really that's just, you know, our, the regulation, the regulatory tool we have, uh, most readily available to us to be able to dictate things like use and building form. Well, that's, and maybe you've kind of answered this, but before we sort of get into the proposal, like what are the kinds of things when you're out in the community, I mean, you've identified these anchors and, and you sort of categorize them and some that were very healthy, some that, that you know, needed some nurturing, uh, some that were sort of longer term. But when you're out in the community and talking to people about what their vision is for these anchors, what are the sort of the elements that they express that are important to them? Every community is different and they have different different elements that they express uh, that are important to them. And, and uh, a lot of times those elements, um, you know, they're intuitive based on uh, what you're able to see on the ground. So, um, you know, Chelsea and Hollywood, let's go back to that intersection. One of the things that uh, we heard a lot, uh, not just in the comprehensive plan, but um, as we've been going through some uh, small area planning in that area specifically, um, is the fact that a lot of the, the commercial businesses, or I guess maybe the, the trend in commercial activity is moving towards more auto-oriented uses um, and moving away from neighborhood serving commercial uses. Chelsea and Hollywood used to have a grocery store. There's no longer a grocery store there. That is a major desire that has been expressed by the community. And it makes sense for uh, a neighborhood serving commercial use like that uh, to, to fit within um, the, the anchor of Chelsea and Hollywood, but also within the building pattern that you see there. Um, you know, a, a more walkable uh, uh, food market uh, is something that would fit very well within uh, within that anchor, the way that it's uh, sort of built and the way that it interacts with the surrounding community. But what they're starting to get more of is, you know, things like auto repair, uh, things like, um, you know, quick service, family dollar type uh, development. Um, but then let's, let's maybe contrast that to... Um, uh, there's an anchor in Oak Haven, Shelby and Chulahoma, where we're doing some work. This is already sort of an auto-oriented corridor today. Some of the aspirations that we're hearing from the community are that, you know, they want to see uh, particularly Chulahoma as it goes into the neighborhoods be a street that's better designed for surrounding the, the existing surrounding na residential neighborhoods rather than what it's becoming, which is as sort of a through route for large trucks and other large vehicles uh, to connect between, um, you know, uh, our high volume auto quarters like uh, Shelby and Holmes or Shelby and Winchester. Um, and, and so, again, it, it depends a lot on what, um, on, on what the character is and how, uh, uh, you know, how these anchors and, and streets that, that connect to these anchors are functioning uh, of what we're hearing. But I think by and large, uh, a theme that we're hearing is that um, 
that within these neighborhood centers, uh, there needs to be better design that functions for the neighborhood. So that's actually a great transition. So why don't you just, um, you know, your office is proposing sort of a comprehensive, you know, a, a package of rezoning of commercial property in, what is it, 21 locations? So yes. why don't so give us sort of the plain language um, overview of what you're proposing and why. You touched on a lot of it, but I sort of want just want to get to sort of what the proposal is. Sure. Um, so the proposal is to rezone uh, in in most places what is now zoned as CMU3. And before you ring the bell, before you ring the bell. <laughs> I was grabbing the bell. Uh-huh. Uh, now those, those letters are going to stand for commercial mixed use. And then the three uh, is, is obviously just, you know, a, a designation uh, differentiating it from uh, other commercial mixed use zones in, in the zoning code. What CMU3 is, is our highest intensity commercial zoning district. So this is where we would allow more sort of highway commercial, auto-oriented commercial uses. This is where we would allow things like gas stations and tire shops and auto repair and car washes. The problem um, is that uh, our CMU3 zones are, um, are more prevalent throughout the city than perhaps we have um, uh, then that perhaps they should be they're prevalent in areas that are not uh, really highway type um, uh, uh, areas they're their neighborhoods um, and so the the you know where this came from is when we transitioned away from the former zoning code prior to 2010 to the unified development code uh, we essentially translated our use districts from the old language to this new language, CMU3 being an example of the new language. But we didn't go through the map and make any changes of where these zones actually apply. So um, that's sort of a legacy, a relic of the zoning code prior to the UDC. Uh, and we're really just gradually correcting that. And we've taken this opportunity to address CMU3 because uh, really the city council has observed a pattern of proliferation of auto-oriented uses like gas stations and tire shops that is a concern to them. And they've asked us to come up with a solution um, to address that proliferation and part of the solution is we just have too much CMU3 on the map and we need to pull some of that back to different use types, different uh, um, uh, zoning districts that are more oriented towards the neighborhoods uh, where, they, uh, uh, where these zones uh, exist. Uh, so the comprehensive proposal uh, in large part is going to, uh, if it's adopted, change a lot of our CMU3 zoning, primarily in our neighborhood uh, centers, from that auto-oriented zoning to either mixed-use zoning uh, or CMU1, which is more neighborhood commercial zoning. And, um, and mixed-use, I guess, is a combination of commercial housing, could be institutional uses. Um, yes. So, so let me ask you a question, just sort of as an aside. So, do we have, do we have a, a higher percentage of CMU of this higher intensity commercial zoning than other cities? And is it sort of a function of the fact that we are sort of a low rise city? It's very spread out. That's a good question. You know, I, I haven't done a comparative analysis with any other uh, cities uh, in terms of the proliferation of a higher intensity commercial zoning district. Uh, what I can tell you uh, based on our research is that uh, we do show a higher um, rate per capita of gas stations within Memphis. I think our research showed that um, 
the number of gas stations per person uh, uh, in Memphis is uh, roughly double of what you see in some of our surrounding suburbs. Uh, it's higher than you know our peers in Nashville uh, and, and and other large cities uh, in the region. And so that's that's a concern for us, and obviously that's a concern. Uh, for the city council as well, and, and and why you know they've asked us to to uh, work through a solution on that. You know why do we have this proliferation? And I think, in large part, that's because a lot of our commercial is found uh, on uh, fairly long commercial corridors. You know, a, a lot of our a lot of our main corridors uh, span east to west a pretty uh, long length of, of space. Um, and a lot of our commercial quarters are, uh, you know, are commercial in nature for, um, uh, for much of, of that length. And so they are auto oriented or they are auto centric corridors. Let's, let's not uh, kid ourselves there, but they also uh, think Poplar Avenue, think, uh, Union Avenue, uh, think Chelsea. They they move through uh, residential areas as much as they move through uh, you know predominantly commercial areas. Um, and so um, you know perhaps in the the zoning code of old we just sort of saw uh, them as being um, you know auto corridors and and didn't uh, respect as much the fact that. Um, that they have an association, they have uh, an, an impact, a connection with uh, with neighborhoods as they you know move from east to west or north to south. Um, and so, what we're trying to do here is not rezone the entire corridor, but uh, constantly rezoning yeah. around these nodes uh, where they sort of interact with anchors or other sort of neighborhood uh, commercial areas uh, along these corridors. Well, I mean, it's making a lot of sense because people forget that a lot of these, especially the East-West streets, as you said, really were, um, I mean, even though some of them were state highways, they were neighborhood streets. I mean, use Union, Summer's another great example. And um, and you know, obviously we can't get into the whole history of urban development and planning here, but um, but c- cities around the country, you know, when cars came in, you know, accommodating them became the priority, mm-hmm. and we lost fact lost sight of the fact that these were neighborhood streets, and that. Um, you know, just making them sort of speedways with auto-oriented businesses changed the whole character of the neighborhood. And it was really unintended consequences in a lot of ways. So if you're just, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm talking to John Zena, who is the with the Division of Planning and Development for Memphis and Shelby County. And we're talking about... Um, uh, a proposal his office has put forward that's going to rezone a lot of neighborhood centers and strengthen them as a result. So, John, um, so so I'm not at all. I mean, this the reason this makes a lot of sense to me is because when you when you go when you do go into neighborhoods and talk to people, um, they don't want a lot of gas stations. They don't want a lot of. Um, I mean, they, they want to be able to buy secondhand tires if they need them, but they don't necessarily want them in these at these major town centers. They want, you know, yeah, grocery stores and small restaurants and coffee shops, and you know that's what you hear. It's people want those kind of um, want those kind of amenities. So this makes this makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so, do you think that? Um, it seems to me that if this is well, first of all, and I know I know this probably comes up all the time, so I'll go ahead and ask you: people who own those kind of businesses now, um, it does not threaten them at all. Right? If you already own a gas station and your underlying property is being rezoned, you don't have to close up shop and move move on. Correct? That's right. So. Uh, you know, zoning is forward looking. Uh, so if, uh, if you own a gas station, um, and your re your property's rezoned to, uh, a, 
a different zoning district that does not allow gas stations by right. Uh, you are what we call legal non-conforming, uh, which means you're allowed to continue to exist, uh, but you're now uh, you now no longer are in conformance with the zoning code. Uh, so when does that become an issue for gas station owner? Uh, if they want to make a substantial change to their structure, if they want to expand their their structure, for example, um, now they're th that's when the new zoning will will really sort of kick in for them, and so they will have to uh, do one of uh, uh, of you know a couple of things. Uh, number one, I, I guess option one is uh, they wouldn't be able to do their expansion, uh, but Option two, uh, they could look to uh, obtain a variance of some sort, and, and really it depends on what it is that they would want to do and whether or not a variance would be appropriate. And when zoning was created 100 years ago, um, you know, the, the framers of zoning knew that this kind of thing would come up. And so, you know, they, they baked in the variance as, you know, really the safety valve uh, at the beginning uh, for uh, when this type of thing comes up. If it's a substantial enough change, though, what they might have to do is, um, depending on their district, um, you know, obtain a special use permit, uh, which means they get reviewed before city council. Okay. But don't, I'm ringing the bell here. So variances or special use permits are both mechanisms that are, that, that allow people to get flexibility, exceptions to the rule in special cases. That's I, right. I was trying to go belfry and I <laughs> well, I just, I mean, you're exactly just, right. Okay. I'm just, there is, so there is, there is accommodation. There's nothing, I'm, accommodation is not guaranteed, but there's accommodation available for people who, let's just say the owner of a gas station who wants to make some improvements. If they want to expand it, that might be not happening, but if they want to improve it or, there's accommodated so so they don't necessarily have to that's right okay okay yeah. i just want i just want to be because i did i did see some um i did see some you know these kind of proposals obviously um there's always people that are opposing i did read some of the you know people that wrote into your office that were opposed to it and i think it seemed like some people are concerned about you know their the lot the a decline in property values, but it seems to me that in a, a lot of cases that wouldn't affect property values at all. That property is going to be. I'm thinking like at the there's a gas station at the corner of Union and Cooper, and which of course is heavily trafficked. I think a lot of people who live in the neighborhood would prefer. Don't think that's a great place for a gas station. It's right across the street from Playhouse on the Square, but the gas station closed. I mean, the fact that it's no longer zoned, this high intensity, I don't think it would diminish the value. It's probably still going to be a very valuable piece of property. That might not be Absolutely. true in every neighborhood, but I don't, but this doesn't necessarily affect the property value. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, you know, if you're a gas station owner and uh, you have a legal non-conforming gas station uh, and the city is reducing the number of areas throughout the city where gas stations can go, I would argue that your property value may increase by this. That's uh, actually a good you've point. you got a unique commodity. Um, but I will add to that, though, that uh, in addition to this commercial rezoning, that, uh, excuse me, comprehensive rezoning that we're doing, we also have a, uh, a proposal uh, that's moving through the adoption process concurrently in the form of a text amendment to the zoning code and what we're attempting to do there is to raise the design standards uh, on particularly gas stations. So for all of these gas stations that may now have to go through the special use permit process, which uh, as you said is, is permission, but it's now permission that you know, has to go through a process, um, there's a higher level of design that we're expecting. So the idea here is yes, you may now be a legal non-conforming gas station, and good for you, um, but uh, we're going to hold you to a higher uh, uh, standard of design should you want to uh, uh, seek uh, a change in in, uh, in your property 
so that um, if we allow your continued existence as a gas station, we're going to do so knowing that we're going to get a better visual and aesthetic uh, and, and, and sort of um, uh, product out of this that is going to have, um, you know, a more positive impact on the surrounding community from that perspective. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me because a lot of times it's not the use it's how it looks, how it blends in with the neighborhood. And, and so I think that will, that's going to, when, when, when those kind of uses do go into a neighborhood or when there, um, there's expansion or anything like that, I do think that's going to go a long way because when you think about it, when you do, there are, I mean, not every gas station is created equal. There's one not too far from me that has some that's that's um you know has some landscaping in front of it. It's got right. some trees and it and it's it's you know low rise. It doesn't have a real. It looks like a gas station, obviously, but it's much more attractive mm-hmm. than other ones. So so that's actually I'm glad to see you're doing that because that makes a lot of sense in terms of making these kind of properties that aren't necessarily desirable uses at least look better. That's right. So, John, elaborate a little bit. It seems to me that these um, there is these changes in land use over time will also contribute and support some other characteristics that people think are important in neighborhood, neighborhood livability. Can you elaborate on that at all? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think maybe the, uh, the, the one area that uh, might be uh, the best place to start is the fact that we're using the MU zoning district um, and mix, MU for mixed use. Why is that unique? Right now, in the zoning code, our mixed-use district sits within uh, the Uptown Special Purpose District. And before you grab your bell, uh, Uptown, of course, is the uh, area north of, of downtown. It obviously has gone through a rebranding. The neighborhood um, formerly known as Greenlaw. Yeah, that's right. Neighborhood <laughs> formerly known as Greenlaw. Um, when it was uh, uh, going through the process of redevelopment um, several years ago, there was a, a special section of the zoning code that was created called the Special Purpose District. And so they had new uh, zoning designations that were unique to them that weren't applied uh, in areas throughout the city. Uh, so we actually uh, began to experiment with taking uh, a district out of Uptown and uh, applying it in uh, an area other than Uptown. The last time we did one of these comprehensive rezonings, and that was along Summer Avenue, uh, and we used the MU district at Summer and National. Summer and National is one of our anchor areas, and we felt like this was uh, an opportune time to uh, to um, you know carry out that experiment because. Uh, of the existing building character that was there, uh, particularly the older building character, and then the desired building character of the future. What do we want out of it? Uh, we wanted the buildings to be built up to the street, uh, which, um, you know, as, as most people know, in the majority of zoning codes, you have a minimum setback, which essentially means that, um, you know, the building must be set back from the street. Well, the mixed-use district kind of turns that on its head. We require buildings to be built up to the sidewalk. So uh, the parking's in back or on the side instead of in front. That's right. That's okay. right. So a more urban that, look. A more urban look. Right. I feel it's a more urban look, but it also it's more supportive uh, and encouraging of uh, a more walkable, transit-served environment uh, because you know we now sort of subordinate the car. Um, to you know the the rear of the property rather than giving the car front door access uh, to the property so um, you know that that is one of the main reasons why uh, we've used MU in our comprehensive rezoning for the same reasons why we wanted to use it at summer and national uh, we see it uh, as being uh, a, a an, an important change for not only, a lot of the commercial zoning uh, and commercial uses we're talking about, but also to be supportive of uh, of walkability, to supportive be supportive of transit 
oriented transit serve, uh, serving development uh, in these uh, uh, various areas, especially the areas that are identified as anchors uh, that are being rezoned. So, and so people will live close to the commercial. Absolutely. I mean, as I mean, in theory, anyway, in a mixed use pro- project. So, um, okay. Okay, they're closer to transit. They're closer to and walkability for sure. And and I like I said, the more urban look and feel, which I personally I think is important, especially in you know the more urban neighborhoods. Not necessarily in Oakhaven, um, but for sure at Summer and National. I definitely agree. So um, and I guess on some level, I would think these changes would support you know neighborhood business development. Um, you know, small local businesses. I mean, you, obviously you can't control what kind of business goes in, but to me, that would seem to be certainly on Summer Avenue. I think that's part of the goal is to try to attract more small businesses to some of these locations and have it feel less like, yeah, just a strip of um, fast food and... Yep, absolutely. And and that's, that's, the, that's the idea, not just at Summer National, but Chelsea and Hollywood too, for example. So what are the, um, I mean, obviously you can't necessarily, you can, there's, there's, you can restrict where businesses can't go. I'm, I'm simplifying here, but it's, you can't necessarily, except in the case of sort of adult oriented entertainment, things like that are extreme. It's, you can't necessarily um, limit where they do go, but I was just thinking would, I mean, we don't think anything about sort of, you know, when you need it, when you need a new car, you go to Covington Pike. I mean, there's other places, but you go to Covington Pike, Flagland, that's what I call it out there. You know, it's clustering. And it seems that ultimately some of these less desirable uses, maybe not the dollar stores, but the tire stores, the used car, those could be clustered in, you know, different sections of town. Is that ultimately, do you feel like that would be where this would go, I guess it would take a long time. It would, uh, but I, I don't know that 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 is ultimately where uh, this is going. Uh, you're right. I mean, Covington Pike um, is is an example of of that clustering. Um, I, I think that that's uh, maybe more of a common market behavior for those types of uses, car lots, uh, or I guess new car lots. Uh, to cluster in that way, um, uh, but it's that behavior is not really the same thing when it comes to uh, it's not really shared when it comes to gas stations and uh, you know tire shops things like that. What we're trying to solve here, let's let, maybe let's go back to the first comprehensive rezoning we did since we adopted Memphis 3.0, and that was on Lamar. Okay, on Lamar Avenue, that Councilwoman Jamita Swearingen identified and in fact she identified it in specific numbers in the moratorium resolution was the oversaturation along this corridor that yes is an auto-oriented corridor but also goes through multiple neighborhoods and is a main intersection uh, to multiple neighborhood centers this corridor was only saturated by uh, all of these auto uses. And I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I mean, she had listed the number of gas stations, the number of used tire shops, the number of vehicle repair, the number of you know car lots and so on. And her point was, this is all this street has become, is this oversaturation of all of these uses. How do we break this up? Her, her uh, goal and ultimately the goal of the, the rezoning wasn't to completely eliminate those uses along uh, Lamar Avenue, but to break it up so that there wasn't such an oversaturation. And more importantly, there, there wasn't a concentration of those types of uses at those neighborhood centers or those intersections uh, that really were uh, the entrances, the main entrances to the adjacent neighborhoods. And that's really what, what our approach here with the comprehensive rezoning is about. We're not taking whole corridors along Chelsea Avenue, for example, and getting rid of all of the CMU3. We're, we're down, we're changing the zoning to MU or to CMU1 uh, at the anchors or uh, the anchor, uh, the areas around the anchors uh, that are most connected to the connections into the neighborhoods so that 
we're breaking up the proliferation of these types of uses. There's, there's still going to be auto-oriented uses on Jackson Avenue and on Poplar Avenue and on Chelsea. Summer, but yeah. It's Summer Avenue, that's right. But we can break up the, the concentration of them so that they still exist, but that we're able to encourage more neighborhood-oriented uh, commercial uses uh, at the main intersections uh, to the neighborhoods. Thanks for clarifying that. That's actually a great Lamar. I'd, I'd forgotten that that was sort of the sort of the pot, the pilot, as it were, for this proposal. That's a great example because Lamar also is, yeah, a street that I mean, in the in the sort of midtown part of Lamar, you know, it's got a lot of elements of what was a, a nice street. It's got neighborhood businesses pulled up to the street. It's got a lot of nice old apartment buildings and homes. I mean, the Glenview neighborhood is there and Anastale Snowden. I mean, um, yeah. and um, it, it does cut through and there's opportunities. Yes. I mean, it's not appropriate for that to be right. a stretch of used tire places. Um, but it, but if there could be less concentrated and more of a neighborhood commercial feel yeah. for sure, that would improve the street. Okay, that makes a lot even, of sense. Even further uh, to the southeast along Lamar, you know, as it sort of makes up the southern boundary of Orange Mound and, uh, you know, the northern boundary of, uh, of uh, oh, goodness, why am I blanking on the community? There are, you know, there are established communities there that, you know, use Lamar for commercial uses, uh, and and you know many of the connections, like Pendleton, for example, yeah, Orange Mound, yeah, are connections sure. into the neighborhoods. Uh, and so while the 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 you know the character uh, along that stretch of Lamar may not necessarily be as um, you know uh, as uh, urban oriented like you would see in in the Midtown section. Um, you know, it still has that that sort of relationship to uh, the surrounding neighborhood. So this is winding its way through the approval process. And just to be clear, so once this is adopted by city council, we can expect to the extent these, these anchor areas changed, it's going to be gradually over time. And it's not, there's not going to be kind of, oh, unfortunately, there's not going to be a wholesale improvement of all these commercial nodes. It's going to be gradually over time. It will affect the way these areas are developed and redeveloped over the next 10 to 20 years. Is that correct? That, that's true. Um, and, and ultimately, this is a regulatory change. I mean, you know, there, there are, are only, only so many um, powers available to government. Uh, the power to regulate and the power to spend, uh, you know, that's pretty much it. Um, so in, you know, most of, uh, most property is, is in the hands of private property owners. Most investment in communities is done by private property owners. Uh, but zoning and changes in zoning are the regulatory tools that we have at our disposal as government uh, to be able to make a lot of the uh, to, to to shift the direction of of how uh, private property is uh, is changed uh, in communities. Okay, so last question. So this is um, you know plans like Memphis 3.0. Um, there's you know policy changes that are you know some of the goals are policy changes that help to reach the vision. And this is a pretty important one, it seems to me. So what other, what other, other, you know, smaller, I mean, larger medium policy changes that you are going to be, or you would like to move forward um, in partnership with elected officials to continue advancing what Memphis 3.0 has laid out for our community? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, This is a, uh, you know, this is a big one because ultimately, you know, as I mentioned, one of the main elements of the comprehensive plan is that future land use map and the way that we get uh, land use in Memphis to look more like that map uh, over time is by using uh, the regulation of land use, which is zoning. So that this is certainly a big one. And, I, and I'll just say, too, that 
um, you know, our anticipation when we put together the comprehensive plan was that, um, you know, any changes in, in zoning would happen after we had done more smaller area plans that, that made a specific recommendation. Um, so, you know, but the fact that, you know, the city council has imposed now, I think, four different moratoria on, uh, on you know, development that they were not interested in seeing more of or a lot more of, I guess, um, has really opened up a window for us to uh, to do more with respect to comprehensive rezoning. So that that's been uh, an important development uh, since the the adoption of the comprehensive plan. Uh, but there are certainly other uh, regulatory changes that we would like to make um, that I think uh, are probably more appropriate coming out of small area planning um, because it gives us an opportunity to uh, to examine the issues and how the policies are being applied, uh, you know, in specific areas. And so just as an example, um, you know, we're working on a transit-oriented development plan for the corridor uh, along Union Avenue that will soon have bus rapid transit. One of the major issues there is, um, before you grab your bail, access management. Essentially, you know, the the pro proliferation of curb cuts uh, that we have along some of these major uh, auto-oriented streets. It's just one giant curb cut. Yeah, it's Union. one giant curb cut. Well, you know, why does that matter? That That's a, a huge safety issue and comfort issue uh, if you want to be a pedestrian along Union Avenue. And if we're going to encourage more transit ridership, we're going to have a lot more pedestrians as a result of that. Uh, and so we've we've got to look at uh, the policy changes with respect to, um, you know, what what we're allowing with respect to curb cuts, access management, um, so that we can create a more pedestrian oriented environment. But that's a very unique type of change that that is is more suited coming out of. Uh, a corridor plan like that. Um, same with Summer Avenue, for example. I know you uh, you talked about the Summer Avenue corridor plan um, with uh, Braden Carson uh, in our office uh, a few weeks ago. That's another good example of where that type of policy change is going to be necessary along a corridor like that. Uh, we'd also like to look at uh, some policy changes with respect to um, you know housing types that uh, that we are uh, promoting within our community. One one such change actually that we're that's working its way through the system now is is actually uh, deals with our building codes. Um, Memphis, like most places, adopts standard building codes uh, that are adopted in cities throughout the country. Uh, and so there's a building code that's used for mostly commercial structures. Uh, and then there's a residential code, but that residential code applies to single family, duplex and townhomes. There's been a lot more conversation within the last few years about the missing middle. Um, right. and, and by the missing middle, uh, we're talking about triplexes, quadplexes, even up to like sixplexes. You know, the types of, of, of uh, low intensity, uh, you know, commercial multi, uh, sorry, residential multifamily that you might find uh, in areas like Midtown, uh, for example. We'd like to do more of that within our community, but one of the barriers to doing that is um, the fact that they're regulated out of our commercial building code rather than our residential code. So one of the local proposals that we have that's winding its way through adoption by the city council and county commission now uh, would be for um, structures of three to six units uh, within one building. Uh, those would now be reviewable under the residential building code as opposed to the commercial code, which just helps to reduce the burden of cost and the, the burden of regulation on doing those types of structures. Now, they're still regulated in terms of where they can go by zoning, uh, but you know, we're able to... to uh, uh, shift or change uh, something in our building code that is now a burden to residential home builders who'd like to get into doing those types of, of structures 
but maybe aren't as familiar with the commercial code or uh, wouldn't see as much return uh, in, in their investment uh, if they had to build it out of that more stringent code. So, uh, that, so that's another example of a policy change that uh, we're hoping to make. Yeah, we had talked about that. So in other words, people, you know, the regulations for building those kind, that kind of housing would be a little less onerous and hopefully people would be encouraged to do more of that um, than they are now. That's right. Uh, and encouraged in the form of, you know, it's, it's just not as costly on your balance sheet to build it with respect to, you know, uh, what you're required, uh, the standards you're required to build to uh, in, in the commercial code versus the residential code. But then also uh, the, the cost of, you know, pulling the permit and, um, you know, the, the, the types of uh, design professionals that you're required to hire uh, under one code versus the other. Okay, that's interesting. There's been a lot of discussion about this sort of missing middle. And of course, it could, you know, if we could encourage more of that, it's going to contribute to the, you know, building up and not out um, aspiration of the plan to, you know, just to increase people living in some of these neighborhoods um, through different kinds of, and also it just gives people more housing options. Absolutely. It, it so, gives more housing options and it, and it brings a, a different type of, of, affordable housing product uh, into the market um, that, that again, is, is, is just giving people more options. Yeah, I would love to see more of that housing. It seems it's become uncommon in a lot of areas, so it seems unpalatable and undesirable. But I don't think people know that we have that kind of housing in, you know, some of our community's most desirable neighborhoods. Like, you know, Chickasaw Gardens has, you know, probably, you know, very expensive neighborhood, has duplexes and, um, and you know, that kind of housing. It's not just you know, a quote unquote, you know, urban neighborhood, um, but, but it hasn't been encouraged. Okay. So that's great. All right. Well, this is all good. Well, I've been talking to John Zena, who's the director of Memphis and Shelby County Division of Planning and Development. We've been talking about a proposed rezoning of commercial nodes in Memphis. And you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. So John, thank you for coming back on the show. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks, Emily. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.